Hi everybody and welcome to our podcast called Connecting Through Commerce powered by Aramex. Over the next couple of episodes we will be chatting with some inspiring business legends. These legends will be telling us amazing stories, casting visions of the future and setting the scene for what's no doubt a very exciting couple of years in the world of commerce, e-commerce, traditional retail, omni-channel and everything these encompass like healthcare. This week we've got a slightly different guest healthcare and sporting hero, and this will be 40 minutes well spent. This is episode number three of uh, our Aramex Connecting Through Commerce podcast series, um, and and my my sort of double has changed here, so we've got, uh, we don't have Christy Watt with us this time, we've got Ilza Prinsloo, um, and we've got an incredibly special guest with us today. The first episode focused a little bit about the future, where the future's Kind of taking us particularly where commerce is involved second episode was telling a, an amazing story um, of sort of rags to riches in a sense coming from uh, township origins and and uh, tim getting all the way into founding many many businesses today we are very privileged to have adam van dyke with us and uh, ilza will you please introduce him yeah, sure. Thank you. So just to make it clear, Christy wasn't replaced. I think I'm just very privileged to be able to meet with with Adams because he falls into um, the, the scope that I work with. So it's healthcare logistics and your Adams, where do I start? I mean, you're such an inspirational man. You've won countless medals, Paralympic hero to to so many and really an inspiration. Uh, you've also recently taken over as the MD for OSA South Africa. Well done, and uh, we look forward to hearing a bit more of what you do and, and how you came to be. So, um, yeah, just please share a bit of your story with us. And now you get to talk. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, thanks, thanks, Ilza. Well, you know, where do we start? You you normally start your story with, with, with when you were born, I think. <laughs> I was born in, in 73, you know, in, in a very difficult period in our country's history. And um, my, my parents were, were farmers and um, I was, it was my time to come and the doctor delivered me and he took one look at me and, and he took away, he took me away from my parents and um, he, he came back later and he, he, his message basically was that, you know, this was the most disabled child he has ever delivered. He can't see this child having a life. They should seriously consider putting me in an institution and moving on sure. very very harsh words um, first-time parents and um, you know and before you want to before you want to crucify the poor doctor you need to think where South Africa was in those years you know there were no anti-discrimination laws uh, I had no future I had no right to demand accessible education I had no right in the future maybe to demand um, equal employment opportunities those things just didn't exist. And that's where he was coming from. I was born, you know, without my legs from, from my knees down. They never developed and my right arm never developed fully. And before I was six years old, I had undergone what I called big surgeries, which is where I was under for more than six hours. And I had 18 of them sure. as they were trying to reconstruct my limbs and my arm to, to get it to be functional because my parents responded by saying, this is our boy he's going home with us and, and we will make this work. So from early on, you know, that was what I was programmed to do, which was to fight for what mm. I want and to work for it. Um, you know, 
we were we were living in a town town called Grafrenet at, at at a later stage, and I was six years old, and my parents trying to, to mainstream me, and they had me in a normal school, and my parents got called to a, a parent-teacher meeting, and um, normally now being a parent myself, when you get called to those, there's normally some trouble that you need to go Not sort out. Great news, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and and the teacher said to my to my mother, you know, do you know where he is every, every afternoon? And my mother is went yes he's at home with with his caretaker um, Rosie who was who was raising me, and um, the teacher said no he's actually next to the sports field and he's trying to play and he, he's not fast enough for tennis and rugby's not working because the boys don't want to tackle him because he's got wooden legs, so oh, only drunk students as you know tackle tree trunks so <laughs> that wasn't working. So they had to make a tough decision to send me to a special school in, in Kimberley, which catered for kids with disability, and um, tough decision for them, especially for my dad, to send me away. But, you know, I got there, and I could participate in sport. I mm. could do any sport that I wanted to. And by the time I was 15, I had springboard colors or national colors in, in five different sports. I was doing basketball, track and field, um, table tennis, swimming, you know, I just living out my life. And, of course, you know, passing by just getting <laughs> getting through but but doing sport and then we got into um 92 and um, i started studying at Stellenbosch university and um my dad suddenly passed away he had a heart attack and and before i went to varsity we had a conversation where he was asking me you know where i want to go with with my sport where at that point i started focusing on wheelchair road racing and i said you know dad i think i can be the best in the world and he just looked at me and like any dad, he said, if you, if you pass, you can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> and off we went to Stellenbosch. And then, you know, he passed away. And that became almost like a promise mm. to my dad mm. to become the best in the world. And it was a long journey and it was a hard journey. And there were many, many setbacks. But eventually, you know, I had my breakthrough in, in 2001, I think, only then. Won my first Boston Marathon and then for a couple of years never stopped winning. And mm. that, that solidified, you know basically my career in sport and, and where it was going. The other side of things is, you know, it, it's, it's not a kind of sport where you can be full-time a professional. There, there was a bit of money, but there was never ever enough money to buy a house or to buy a car or, you know, to start a family. So I was always, always working. And um, at one point I started a company called Enable Sports. And basically through my connections that I had built up in this world that I was participating in, I started distributing custom-made sports equipment for the disabled worldwide. So I was doing deals in Russia and doing deals in Australia and doing deals in, um, I think, Nepal. I did a, a deal with the military vets in Nepal and supplying them with, with sports equipment. And that was my business and, and just dealing with this while competing and training around the world. Um, because I'm a double amputee, I, I, I use prosthetics. And at some point I got involved with this company called OSA as an ambassador for them. And they started supplying my prosthetic components for me. And at one point, um, the MD then, Leroux Fulion, asked me to come and join them at a, at a conference and just be in the booth and, and talk to their customers. And on a level, because I'm, I'm very technical of nature, I really wanted to be an engineer when I was looking for a career path. And basically at that point, I couldn't get a bursary to be an engineer because they told me you were disabled. You can't be an engineer. So I always had that interest and, and I approached my sports and everything like that. And while at that conference, talking to our customers, I really connected on a technical level with them. 
and and he saw this and he saw this as potential and he basically said to me I really want to want you to come and work for OSA. I don't know what you're going to do, but mm. just come and sit there and see where it goes. <laughs> and I started working there three days a week and, and starting just understanding the business, grasping it and, and figuring out what was going on. And eventually, you know, they found a role for me and, and I moved on. And it's now it's now seven years since I've mm. joined OSA that I've been with the company and really a very fulfilling journey that I've embarked on there. Sure. And I want to ask you a question going maybe further back. Um, you had a lot of people saying you couldn't and you can't and you won't and you, this, this won't happen. But you must have had equally, you know, people encouraging you and pushing you forward and saying, of course you can and go for it. I mean, tell us about that. And ultimately they won, you know, the, the sort of mm. naysayers were, were shown up. Um, you know, it's always, it's always your parents. Of course, mm. your parents are the big believers in you. Um, there were some, some, some coaches along the way. And, and, you know, I was the kid like, um, I was in school in Kimberley, and you know, it's still pretty cold in August, and we only had an outdoor pool uh, where we could train. And I was the kid in the morning waking up the teacher, who was also the swimming coach, to tell him, it's five o'clock, we need to start training. <laughs> you know, and I it's bet you were his favorite <laughs> student. Maybe <laughs> 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 not. So that's just the way I was, is I had this drive to, to succeed, and, and I knew I, I would have to work for it. But along the line, you know, there was there was coaches, there were people that, that I'm still involved or mm. in contact with today, which which played a fundamental role. And then there were there were role models, you know, at that point where I started looking for higher heights in the sport. It is a very technical sport. Mm. There was no YouTube, there was no Google. The base, the way information was shared was, you had to find an older athlete who was on his way out willing to share his knowledge with you mm. because there is a lot of technical things in the sport the way we build our gloves because we have to build our gloves mm. ourselves the way you sit in the chair the way you make the chair aerodynamic uh, how you set up the chair how you select the tires all those kind of things doesn't that knowledge had to come from somebody and this mm. swiss guy who had won five boston marathons in a row took me under his wing and i remember i used to go to Switzerland, stay at his house for months mm. and train with him and, and just soak up all this knowledge that he had. And those are the, the type of things and, and people that made a huge difference because that helped me to get where I am today. And, and in some way I saw you talking about talent versus work ethic, work ethic you know, and talent mm. will get you so far, work ethic's mm. the, the sort of next step. I mean, months and months of training in Switzerland, it's not a flat place, um, speaks to me of work ethic. Um, then then you kind of beyond work ethic i mean you, we were talking earlier and you said it on the podium everyone's got the same work ethic they're all probably there with the same amount of talent it's those final final split second marginal gains tell us about that i mean where does it come from when you're being chased down by you know a sprint pack um, and you manage to just stay in the front what yeah. are you drawing on there yeah it's a it's a difficult concept you know for for and I know South Africans are so passionate about our sport and we just need to win whenever we go out there. And the thing is, you are competing against a global gene pool. Mm. So the best of the best in the world are all in that race with you. They've all worked just as hard. They all practically you know, have the same talent. And at the end of the day, it's, it's about who's the best prepared and, and who wants it the most. And you know, one of the things that I also did was I quickly figured out that in order to fulfill that promise to my dad to become the best in the world, I had to find a way to coach myself. So I had to go study sports science. 
and postgraduate sports science to figure out the science behind how to coach, how to teach yourself, how to test yourself, how to do this in a structured way and manner so that when you get to that top level that you're on the same level. A lot of those guys that I compete on against are, are coming from very structured programs mm -hmm. where their talent was identified when they were 13, 14, 15 years old and nurtured to the point where we are together in that same final. So I had to find a way to bridge that and, and to make it to my advantage. And the thing is, none of those eight or 12 or whatever guys who are in that final are looking for a second place. Mm -hmm. They are all hunting the gold medal. That's all they want. And they have sacrificed tremendous amounts. And it's on the day, you know, who's got that big match temperament that we talk about, who's prepared, who's got the experience, and that's the one who delivers. You know, my son, both my kids do gymnastics, and I'll never forget when he was quite a bit younger, we said, you know, Jamie, how, how are you feeling about this competition? What are you aiming for? He says, no, I'm aiming for silver. So I said, aiming for silver? He says, yeah, I've got a bronze and I've got a gold, so I just need to get the silver now. <laughs> I want the full set. So we obviously had to change um, some of these. No, I can see that. I mean, I've also <laughs> felt I wanted a full set a few times. <laughs> it happens. So, so I mean, you've... Um, what, what would you say your biggest sporting achievement? You know, I, I know. Tell us about your Boston Marathons because that must be pretty incredible. But maybe that's not the one that feels like the most. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for thirty years, from from ninety two up to now. It's, it's a long journey, and there's been a, a lot of highlights. So it's difficult to single something out. You know, my goal was always to to set the most wins in Boston. When once I, I realized it was possible. And that was at that stage seven, and I went on to win 10 of them. Um, been on the podium 18 times in Boston, you know, one New York, one Paris, one Los Angeles. But I think the biggest challenge for me was, I, did, I was doing two sports later on because I wanted to challenge mm -hmm. myself, so, so at a sport, okay? So I started doing <laughs> hand cycling as well. Not well, chess or something? No, 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 <laughs> paracycling. And then in the beginning I was, I was doing quite well and I was winning multiple UCI World Championships titles. And then this guy came along called Alex Zanardi, and he brought with him, first of all, he, he was a special physical specimen, as, as we know most Formula mm -hmm. One drivers mm -hmm. are. Um, physically, they are really special. And then he brought all this, this technology that he had in Formula One mm -hmm. and his friends there to the sport. And he just leaped it into the future. And, and here I am, and um, I was the gold medalist in, in 2008 in Beijing on, in the road race cycling road race and then in in london he showed up with this spaceship of a bike <laughs> and i finished second and he won and i just laughed as i crossed the line <laughs> because i thought how how do i compete with this came home applied my mind for the next four years worked really hard you know instead of building a new house i bought a new bike and my <laughs> wife would hit me in the kitchen every morning for a couple of months but um and then went to rio and and this time I was first and he was second and he wasn't laughing when he crossed the line. So that was a really, it really, I had to dig deep. I wasn't young anymore, neither was he, mm -hmm. but I wasn't young anymore. Um, I had a f full family, you know, two children, a very busy life, started working for OSA and, and eventually I, I could pull off that gold medal. So that was a big one. Mm. On awards, you know, I've never been a big one for awards. I find awards are very, subjective a mm. couple of guys sit in the room and they decide who gets the award but i won a laureus award and i'm one of a 
very limited few South Africans who's won a Laureus yeah. Award. And why that is special is because you're, first of all, evaluated against all the athletes in the world across all sports code. So you are the sportsman of the year in the world across all sports. And the panel who decides that are all former athletes, mm. top athletes, mm. athletes who delivered multiple gold medals. And I got awarded in 2006 the Laureus Sports Person of the Year with a disability. So that was probably one of the highlights for me. It's incredible. Yeah. It's yeah. an amazing achievement. And honestly, when we said inspirational man, uh, we were underselling it a bit. So really well done. And just uh, just from, from myself, uh, sitting across from you, is, is, it's a true inspiration. Mm. Uh, throughout the, I think, everyone can speak to it, but throughout the pandemic, everyone's been challenged in some which way or form, whether it be through uh, loss of a, of a loved one or, or physical illness that you've actually suffered from the virus or loss of a job. And um, there's, there's something that really stood out on, on Oslo's website where uh, through coping with the loss of a limb, uh, which I think we can relate to what we're going through in the pandemic at this stage is, will you give in to despair? And it really all determines how you're going to handle your situation. Are you going to give in to that despair? Um, or are you going to see surviving or coping through this process as a heightened and exciting life achievement New when challenge. you get through it? Um, and that really is something that's resonated with me throughout this whole year. I think we've, we've all been challenged in some which way. So I'm, I'm thankful for you sitting across the room from me. Mm. <laughs> I think whenever we are, we are faced with, with adversity, and I've been there quite a lot of my life, we have the free will to, and we need to make a decision. And the decision is what will you do with that adversity? Will you let it keep you down or will you stand up and, and, and become who you, you, who you were meant to be? Mm. And that's always a philosophy that I've approached. I mean, I've had situations where I really invested to get to a race, you know, and then on the starting line, the, the chair would break down and I can't even start. And it would have been so easy at that point to just throw in the towel and give up. But that is adversity. I've had accidents where I crashed and wiped out and was bleeding next to the road in pieces and it would have been so easy to give up. Mm. But, you know, you get in the ambulance, you get patched up and you move on. Amazing. Not everyone does. No, so, not so everyone does. Congratulations <laughs> for that. I, I guess, I mean, it's a question I, I would have asked you a little bit later, but you had sport as a motivator. When people don't have sport, I mean, how much harder do you think it is? Do you think there are other things that sort of naturally motivate them um, to, to find that resolve and the purpose and, and everything else? Or is sport just an amazing channel or an amazing outlet to get into? I'm a, I'm a firm believer of... of and, and I live this, a healthy body houses a healthy mind. Mm. I think when you are physically conditioned in, 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 in a good way and you are healthy, it is so much easier to maintain mental health yeah. and, and to find positives in the world. You go for a jog, you soak up nature, you see things that you would normally not have seen if you were just somebody who moves from your house to your job and back mm. again every day. Mm. So for me, Sport is a channel, and uh, physical activity is a channel whereby we become richer yeah. and we become better. And I've recently, you know, I'm, I'm reading quite a bit, and, and there's, there's this whole new movement of, of 
CEOs and, and who make this whole fitness culture part of their corporate culture and how they find how out, higher output and mm. higher productivity because it just makes people work together better, it makes them perform better and, and it makes makes them happier. More so grateful. Yeah, more sure. grateful. Yeah. So I've always, you know, that's part of my genetics. It's part of what I believe in and it's it's what I encourage people around me to do. Hmm. And also, you, you touched on how you got involved with them. I mean, for the benefit of people who are not familiar with the business, I mean, a little bit of history maybe, um, where it started, mm. where it finds itself now. Um, and then, you know, earlier we were chatting a bit about bionics and the, the future. I mean, I, I'd love to sort of end with where where, where the going. future's going, but where, where are we right now with... With Asa. So, yeah. you know, Asa was, was founded in Iceland. So it's an Icelandic company. I always, always, yeah, say I, I work for the Vikings, but it's, <laughs> it's an Icelandic company. It was founded in, in 1971 by a guy called Asa Christiansen, who was a Bologna amputee himself but he was also a prosthetist. Now a prosthetist is, is the, the, our customer and they are responsible for manufacturing uh, artificial limbs for, for patients out there. And he was that, and he was really struggling to find back in 1971, you know, a, a good way to interface the socket, which is the hard part of the artificial leg that um, connects to the person's residuum or limb that he's got left. And, um, if, if this prosthesis is not connected to your body well, you can't place it in space where it is. And quite often in those years, an amputee would trip and fall mm. and they would not be um, confident walkers because they never know, knew where this leg was. And, and he really focused on that and he started playing with silicone and he developed this, this thing called a roll-on silicone sleeve, which was basically where our business started. And that was it. It was groundbreaking technology it changed the way, it changed the quality of life for amputees out in the world severe, I mean, profoundly. Mm. Mm. And um, so the company just grew from there uh, through, through, you know, it was listed um, on the Danish stock exchange and through acquisitions, the company expanded and, and we increased the portfolio to include prosthetic feet. Um, we developed prosthetic knees and um, we branched out into bracing. So today we, we, we focus on non-invasive orthopedics. Um, globally, we are the second largest in the world. We operate in two segments, as I mentioned, prosthetics, which has a mechanical component to it, but there's also a bionic component mm. to it. We also focus on bracing and support. So there you would look at, you know, when you see somebody walking around the street and they've got what, what people call a, a moon boot on, that is bracing. So we do that. We do post-operative knee braces. Um, we do if you have an injury, you sprain your ankle or you sprain your wrist or you dislocate your elbow, we have bracing that, that will help you get back to, to life quite quite easily. But um, innovation remains core to our strategy. We reinvest around 6% of our turnover into R&D every year because at the moment technology is exponential. Mm. We need to keep up, we need to innovate, we need to improve you know, our products all the time. We are direct now in, in 32 countries. Um, we are distributing in many, many more. And South Africa in the beginning was, was a distribution center and then also decided, well, there's enough potential in this country and in this business to have a direct footprint here. So in 2011, um, they acquired the local distributors and we became also South mm. Africa. And, and we've been really 
fortunate that we've had good support from, from our customers in the country and we've grown to the point where we now need to expand. We need a bigger warehouse and um, we are busy um, building a new facility which we will lease um, um, close to Cape Gate Mall mm -hmm. here. And it's really a big move for us and we're all very, very excited about it. I mean, us is really important sort of mission statement was, was around timing. Um, you, you were talking about it earlier. Um, take us through that. I mean, I, and certainly that's where Ilza would, would have a lot of experience. I mean, being on the account and, and working, it's time to market, it's time to, yeah. to a patient. Yeah. It's, it's providing certainty and constantly providing certainty to the market. So I think that's, that's quite important. And you make it very clear on your and with your customers in terms of service level agreements. Mm -hmm. We need to provide that certainty and, and that's, that's really important. And the importance of getting, as you say, a, a mobility device to somebody. I mean, take us through some of your examples mm. earlier because they, they hit home. Yeah, so, so basically when, when, when you think about the products that we sell, they are life-changing products. And, and being on time and, and being able to, to provide our products to our customers so they can fit their patients are very important because not being on time can have an effect where... We always need to remind ourselves that there is an end user at the end who is waiting for his new foot or his knee or his first prosthesis, you know, to walk his, his daughter down the aisle mm. or to go to an important ballet performance by, you know, a grandchild, to be there, to attend, because without our devices, which are mobility devices, they, they can't live a life that's full. They need this, and it's important that we have the best products, we have the, the best innovation, and that we deliver on time. So they can, you know, it's, it's, it's as you said earlier, it's, it's, it's a huge step when somebody loses a limb, uh, whether it's an arm or a foot or a, or a leg. And for that patient or that person in the end to readjust and to take their life back again, is, is, it's, it's, a, it's a tough journey, it's a hard one. They go through very a lot of different phases mm. of, of loss and disappointment and anger and we have to be there to make sure that the, 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 the component part of it is as smooth and easy as mm. possible we invest a huge amount of money and time to to train our customers on how to make a really comfortable well-fitting socket that that interfaces with their body at the, at the highest level and that's part of our investment, you know, with, with a new facility for the first time, we're going to put down a training academy where we can frequently bring customers there and educate them on, on how to build state-of-the-art legs, uh, artificial limbs, and, and how to fit them to their customers and how to train their customers to use them. Because, again, technology is exponential and we are moving so fast mm. at the moment that it's getting hard to, to keep up. We are busy developing really complex devices with regards to arms and hands and, and bionic knees, bionic feet. And um, it, takes, it takes a serious amount of training to teach our customer how to fit that and then to teach them how to teach the patient how to use it. I mean, you were talking about some, some incredible stuff. I mean, I, as we were saying earlier, as an engineer, I just want to hear more about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but um, the bionics and the, um, the sort of future of healthcare where, where's that going to go? You know, we're talking about artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. figuring out that you're reaching for a door handle, um, grip chips and so on. I mean, t take us through some of some of the future. It's it's a bit of a conundrum for us because we, we call it the, the um, 
what is it called the star star wars moment <laughs> so there's a moment in star wars where where luke skywalker gets his artificial arm and he just opens it up and he closes it and and you can see it's a it's a bionic arm or a robotic arm but it looks normal and it functions normally and sometimes that is the expectation of the end user mm. when they get a bionic device that it's going to be like that star wars moment and so there we have a really important job in, in how we manage that expectation to say we, we would love to be there mm. and we are going there but we are not there yet and we are at the point now where we've not fully we've, we, we are researching how to integrate these devices to the body we have mind controlled prosthetics um, being tested but we are nowhere near you know FDA approval mm. and rolling it out as a product so at the moment those devices are still reading the input from either muscle tone underneath the skin or where the, the foot or the knee is in space or we call it the walk the, the walking cycle and adjusting according to that and these devices are reading thousands of impulses per second and just adjusting to keep that patient safe stable and confident as they're using it um, hands are tough when you think about your hand and your fingers and the, the tactile feedback you get when you're using your hand knowing what to do mm. You're not getting that from a prosthetic or a bionic hand. So there, the training on, on something that we call pattern recognition. So letting the device realize what the pattern of movement is and what you're trying to do and letting it adjust to that. So it's a lot of programming from the patient in his own environment mm. to get to use that device optimally. And we have things like grip chips that mm. we place around the environment which activates the hand that you are now going to the door or to your PC or to your fridge so that it goes in the correct grip to open that device that you want to open up. Hmm. I mean, we were talking as, as we were walking into the studio, you were explaining how your foot already is is calibrating based on the swing of your leg and the angle and everything else and helping you put that foot down. I mean, to somebody who hasn't had to ever think about this, that's it's already pretty incredible. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, I mean, we were talking earlier about the configurability of some of these and, and your enormous number of, of items like, and you know all the different so components. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, when, I mean, you're a guy too, you're a girl, so you'll get this, but <laughs> different shoes have different heel heights, mm. yeah. right? And the alignment of a prosthetic is set up according to a two centimeter, centimeter heel mm. height. Now you put on your church shoes and it's got a four centimeter heel mm. height. And suddenly your alignment is out and the leg is pushing you forward and you, you're not on balance. What this foot, for example, can do, we call it the proprio foot, is it has an app. And on my phone, I can program different shoes. Hmm. Take a photo of the shoe, program the foot to adjust to that heel height so the alignment is optimal again. And as I'm changing my shoes in the morning, I just send a message to the foot from the app that we are now wearing shoe A and it adjusts the alignment immediately and I'm comfortable. Mm. And for a, for, a, for a girl, you know, we can go up to, on this specific foot, up to seven centimeters. Sure. So it's, it's, wow. a, it's a considerable heel. <laughs> I'm not sure how high heels can be. can high heel there. What's a full-size high heel? Well, you're asking seven, the eh? wrong girl. I'm a, I'm a flats girl. <laughs> but, but again, the, the difference that a well-fitting, well-configured, et cetera, um, shoe would make is not tripping, it's confidence, it's being able to... I imagine hike and, and start start doing things that would have felt impossible uh, yeah. before that, and it's it's getting there. Yeah, it's I amazing. Mean, even when you're 
I'm a bilateral amputee, so I don't have what we call a sound side or a good leg to catch me. Okay. So I'm really dependent on the feedback that I'm getting from my prosthetics to make sure where's my body in space? Am mm. I in balance? Will the next step be a co- one of confident or, or one where I'm looking, mm. you know, just in the dark, like you, you mm. would walk in the dark looking mm. for the floor? So these are all very important things that that make our end users live with confidence, walk with confidence, and, and operate the environment with confidence. Sure. Sure. So it's a long way that uh, you've come talk about technology pioneers. I mean, from the wooden legs you were standing next to the sport field with to, to what you just described to us, that that is insane to me. That's amazing just how far prosthetics have come. And just like you mentioned, the confidence that you are able to give people with a, a loss of limb or a disability, it just, it's, it's really awesome. You know, and, and, yeah. and as awesome as it is, it's also, it's, it's still a challenge, in, for example, in South Africa, because 80% of our population is not on private medical funds. Mm. They are on state funds. And in the state, you often still see the technology that I grew up with sure. back in the 70s being fitted today. And that is where the excitement is for us, is, is how, do we, how do we make products that meet the price point of the public sector yeah. and give access to those patients to some of the latest innovations that we've been developing over the years? How do we give those patients back normal life when they're going back into a rural area mm. or they, when they're going back to the Eastern Cape where you know they have to walk four or five kilometers just to get water? Sure. So that is the exciting part for us, is, is exploring that part of the market where we've not had a reach in the past and getting our products into that, that sector and, and exploring that opportunity. I mean, that, that feeds exactly into where I wanted to, my next question, which was, obviously, Africa represents all sorts of opportunity, not from a business point of view, but from a, a remedial point of view. And, and um, you know, just empowering people like you've been empowered with this, this tech feels like it's getting more and more expensive but what you're saying is you're actually trying to innovate down uh, into the more accessible more sort of cost effective uh, category is that possible i mean the materials in use and the the technology in use you mentioned earlier also puts a whole lot of money back into r&d is it is it yielding cheaper and cheaper products that achieve uh, results so r&d is expensive but we are we are at the point now where you know there is estimated to be more than 8 million amputees in Africa. That is a huge potential customer base that we are not even touching Mm. because maybe we don't have the right products, maybe they don't have sufficient reimbursement, but Africa is a developing nation. I mean, it is developing very quickly and there is opportunity there. And we need to make sure that we have the right products ready Mm. when that opportunity opens up. And we are carefully exploring it and realizing by just you know touching here and there that it is already there. We just need to make sure that we, we can deliver there and that we are building up the networks to, to reach into those, those different countries in Africa. We've already established a really good footprint in, in Mauritius. Um, we've been in Namibia because mm. Namibia used to be South African. We, we're now looking at, at expanding. We've, we've expanded into Zambia. And, and we have more plans because that the, the potential is there and we just need to make sure that we are ready with the right products um, that can meet the expectations of, of those users. And the expectation of a, of a user in, in rural Africa is, is very different from somebody mm. in a first world country mm. um, living in a retirement village. Yeah. Mm. 
sure. eight million lives that's changing. Yeah. That's, that is quite exciting. That's very exciting. I, I mean, I, I have to ask. I mean, is it a lot of is a lot of that as a result of war? Is a lot of it is it you know just kind of loss or I, I, I think any insight on that figure? I mean, no idea. But I think when you think about and people. You know, you look at Africa and you think it's it's smaller than, than the United States or it's mm. smaller than China. Africa is bigger than those two combined. Yeah. It is a massive continent yeah. with a huge population and it's still it's still wild out there. You know, mm. accidents happen. Um, there's been wars um, through the years and, and road accidents, uh, mining accidents, accidents in industry. Mm. So those are happening all the time. Mm. And, and those patients are out there and, and we need to find a way to eventually get to them. But for now... Our, our biggest focus is is on South Africa, our country, and and how we can make this as good as it can be first. Sure, I, I've it's been such a privilege to to chat to you and and uh, hear some of your background. And you know, we try to keep this a fairly quick podcast, but <laughs> uh, I could talk to you for hours, I'm sure of it. So thank you so much for for distilling some of your your insights and knowledge and just experience with us. And um, yeah, all the very best for more records set and. You know, I, I'm amazed that you're a f- sort of full-time worker still participating at this incredibly high level. So I know that I can imagine what that takes. Um, so thank best you. of luck with it. Yeah. Thank yeah, you, Noel. Thank you. So, so, so um, appreciative of your, of your time and just your energy and the positive message that you, that you leave with us. It's, uh, it's been amazing. Thank you so, so much. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much to our guest for joining us today and sharing all his knowledge and insights. We thoroughly enjoyed it and we know our audience did too. And if you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow and share. Catch you next time.